that you are staying safe out there. Um, I know that COVID cases are going crazy right now, and uh, this intro is actually going to be quick. Our uh, daycare is shut down because of COVID, so I've got little baby and toddler home. Um, so just trying to get this recorded and get this out for you guys. Uh, but I'm so excited about this episode. You guys are going to love it because it's got some real practical steps that we can take with kids to help them focus on regulation. So who we have today is Lauren Spiegelmeyer. She has, over the past 10 years, helped so many people learn about the brain and how it impacts learning and emotional well-being, uh, which in turn helps us change behavior, which that's really what most parents and educators are looking for, right? So uh, she has a master's degree in education and she's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania and she has founded the Behavior Hub. She absolutely loves building brain and research-based child-driven trainings and courses with the whole child in mind and she is here to talk to us today. So I'm gonna roll that intro and then you guys get to meet Lauren. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Lauren, for joining us. I'm so excited to learn more about what you do. So if you could just start by letting us know a little bit about you, a little bit about your background and what led you to starting the Behavior Hub. Sure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, for having me. A bit of background, uh, gosh, about 10 years ago, I started teaching in public education and very quickly realized that there were quite a few children in my classroom and in the school and, and watching interactions between educators and, and kids and seeing some kids that people would label challenging or defiant or oppositional and feeling like they were misunderstood. Like I could just sense inside of me that that there, there was more to the behavior than just misbehaving. That that was communicating something, but people weren't seeing it. And I was, I mean, I was like 20, 21, so I graduated college early, went right into the field, but that started a fire inside of me. And I started reading and researching and trying to find people in fields of psychology and psychiatry and just mental health and started developing mentors from them and learned a lot about the brain and a lot about behavior. And that led me into positions I'm in now. So founded the Behavior Hub to address this need, both with school systems, but also within homes and even in organizations, because 
trauma doesn't just exist with kids. It exists with adults too. And a lot of times we carry that trauma through our life. So setting up workplaces that are conducive to address the needs of, of trauma exposure or even just stress. And about three years ago, University of Pennsylvania called me. They wanted to develop a trauma invested certificate program. So now I am, I created part of that program and teach that. So most of my work daily teaching people about the brain, stress, trauma, and how to both prevent it and respond and react to it. That is awesome. So tell us a little bit about that program that you, that you were just talking about. So the, the program for Penn and the program that I created for the Behavior Hub kind of interweave. Uh, and that's because what I teach to anyone is this triad approach of healing from stress and trauma because, because we all experience stress and a lot of us experience trauma, even if we don't think it, it's a big trauma, it can be these little micro you know, stressors that really would, would equate to trauma. Uh, so the, the program has this kind of four step uh, component where we talk about how to identify and categorize emotions and kind of teaching emotional literacy. Then we teach ways to both be reactive and preventative with coping and calming strategies. And then we finally, you know, create, create a space to kind of deescalate and then teach problem solving. And those steps are the same, whether you're a three-year-old or you're a 30-year-old, mm -hmm. uh, just looks a bit different for each age group. And then within that framework, we talk about, okay, that, that's more of the psychological brain-based aspect, but also what we need to talk about, what we need to include is the food we eat and the movement our body gets, because those three components within that framework are really, really important for longevity and sustainability of, of healing. I love that. So how do you get referrals or you know you say you work with education systems organizations um how does that usually come about is it an educator saying you know we have behavioral issues here do they know that a kid has a you know complex trauma history how does how do you get access great question a couple different avenues uh, some is connecting to to networks that are within schools or within organizations. So connecting to those people and they connect me to maybe administration and administration will bring me in and we'll do some training and some coaching along with that. I'm not a huge fan of coming in and just doing personal development and leaving because I don't think that <laughs> I know based on research that doesn't typically solicit a lot of change. So ongoing coaching programs, sometimes it'll be families that are referred through schools or even just through word of mouth. They'll hear about it and, and they'll hear on other uh, mediums and platforms, so social media or podcasts or, or news articles, blogs, whatever it may be. People would just kind of come in through all these different avenues. And I will initially just, no matter who it is, create a, a discovery call to see if what I do and what I offer is a good fit for any of those people. I love that. You're really reminding me of, we had uh, Dr. Melissa Saden on who talks about this, this uh, theory of kind of making the whole classroom. She talks about ducks and lions, but basically okay. making the whole classroom um, fit everyone rather than singling out problem kids or kids with challenges that you think that you should apply some particular she's just saying no like the whole classroom should look like this and if you address um both ducks and lions then your classroom will be better for that so um i really like that i'm hearing that your is your secret sauce the psychological um piece 
food and movement? Are those like the, is that the triad? Yeah, I would say that's a huge component, but I would say the, the framework, like that four piece framework of like categorize emotions, teach common coping, create a de-escalation space and problem solving is probably the core of everything I do. And okay. then the triad is integrated into that. So it's kind of like the, that's the baseline. And then growing out of that uh, is when we add in the other, the other components. All right. So this is more of a framework that, that you could take, say, if you're in a classroom or if you're, mm -hmm. you know, doing a mentorship program, or yep. even if you're a parent, it's yep. a framework that you could kind of apply to what you're already doing, what already Absolutely. exists, your, our, your curriculum. It's not a yep. separate thing. Yep. hundred percent. And that, that is because I worked in public education for many years and I knew what it was like to, and I can only imagine what it's like now, or has been like the last year and a half, two years, everyone's overwhelmed. Everyone's overworked. Even, even parents have a lot on their, their plates. So designing a program that isn't something extra, like how, how can we take this information that we have about the brain, this framework and integrate it into what we already do every day. So once it's taught and once people understand it, it's just seamlessly embedded into what you're already doing. And you're just kind of referencing it throughout your day because it, it connects to all parts of your day. I love it. So can you go like just a little bit deeper on each part of the yep. those, that framework? Yeah. So the first step is teaching kids how to categorize their emotional states. Cause if you can't recognize how you feel, you don't know that you need to do something to, to change that. So the first step is categorizing and that can look a, a lot of different ways. It depends on the age of the child. So if it's a really young child, I might do like, there's a, a four color domain uh, categorization system. Like you'll have blue, and then green and then yellow and then red and each color represents a series of emotions so blue is probably those ducks it's probably like the low energy the quieter green is that optimal energy you're focused yellow is that very short period of time where any of us are like okay i'm, I'm starting to feel anxious or i'm getting frustrated and then we quickly jump to red where we've completely lost control so if it's a young kid i might teach those four colors and just you know, reference that throughout the day. I'm feeling like I'm in the blue zone because I'm, I'm tired. I, I feel really, you know, I just need a nap right now or I need some coffee, whatever it is, and kind of speaking those things out. If it's an older kid or even an adult, you could use the colors as a frame of reference, but I might also use this just hand signal and created out of Dan Siegel's work, but Georgetown University took it a step further. And you essentially have like your thumb and you wrap your fingers around your thumb. So you're creating like kind of almost like a, a sign, uh, ASL sign letter, I believe it's E. And wrap your fingers around your thumb and your thumb is your emotional brain. And you might call it the barking dog. For older kids, we would call it the downstairs brain. Emotional control center. Your fingers that wrap around your thumb, that would be your thinking brain. And we would call that the wise owl or your upstairs brain. And essentially what's happening here, much like the chart, is we get emotionally elevated, we get triggered. And the dog or the downstairs brain gets activated and barks. And the loud barking of the dog scares away the wise owl. And that means that when we are emotionally activated, we can't usually access reason. So it's not until we learn to, to calm down, use those coping strategies, calm down the barking dog, get back into the green zone, that we can access logic, that we can access that wise owl and think again. And that's that's where communication comes in. I mean, so many times as parents, educators, whoever it is, 
kids are in a breakdown state or they're emotionally elevated. Their dog is barking. They're in the yellow or even the red zone. And we're trying to reason with them. We're trying to communicate with them, but communication skills can't be accessed when you can't access your thinking brain. You have to get to your thinking brain first to be able to communicate back and receive and respond. So I think our approach is a little bit backwards. It's just more like reactive, impulsive, like stop the behavior, stop the thing from happening. And, and there are times when that's appropriate. When a child's in danger, you have to step in and intervene. Uh, but I think understanding that framework, and I went through that very, very fast, that, that first category in the barking dog, the wise owl. I break this down on, on our website, on podcasts, on blog posts I have listed there that really go into it a lot more in a lot more detail. But you have to learn to categorize your emotions first. You have to understand that you're not feeling well, you're not feeling the way you want to, you're in an elevated state, even as an adult, to get back to that neutralized state. That's the biggest thing. If you don't have that, you're starting at the wrong place. So that's the biggest thing we'll spend time on. Then we'll teach kids, adults, both coping, calming strategies. So that's all kinds of things. And that's where we weave in the movement and the food because certain foods can be de-escalating or keep your blood sugar more stabilized, keep your mood more stabilized. Movement can bring your energy up or bring your energy down depending on how your system works and what type of movement you're using. So we kind of create a personalized toolbox of tools for someone to use that work for them. And then we might, depending on the person, the child, the age, create like a de-escalation area. Because sometimes we, we can't in the moment de-escalate. We need like a physical space to go to. Our brain needs a spot to go to to de-escalate. Or maybe you even need that preventatively, a place that you go to, to like take a moment, reduce energy, stimulation, whatever it is, and then come back. So that's kind of an optional step. And the fourth step, the, the one that a lot of people omit, is problem solving. So once you've gotten back into the logical brain, the, the, the wise owl brain back into the green zone, we need to solve the problem because if we don't collectively talk through and solve the problem, the behavior is going to happen again next time because we're going to get triggered and we're not going to know what to do differently because we haven't come up with an alternative response. We've only learned how to deescalate, which is great. It's better than nothing, but we have to know what to do differently. So I, I really teach that framework, uh, religiously and uh, really try to integrate it into what does this look like in a school setting? What does this look like in a home setting? What does this look like for adults in a work setting and making it and you know, kind of work for everyone? I love this. I love this so much. So there's a part of the stable moments program where like the, we have a three part plan for all of our sessions, which are hour long one-on-one -on -one mentorship session. Um, but at the beginning it's connection and that we, we say to, to check in, check in with the child, check in with the horse. Mm -hmm. This is a time to kind of, they might've just been dropped off from a 45 minute ride with seven siblings and it's a crazy car ride. And it's just yep. time to see where you're at before you just, um, yep. jump in. And, but we have not made it so structured like you're talking about where we really give a resource of them talking about how their engine's running or yep. where exactly are they feeling. And as we know, with plenty of kids with complex trauma, asking how are you feeling? Like it might be way too broad yep. to, or they may know the right answer is fine or whatever. Yep. The right answer yep. is regulated, right? They might actually say that um, to where we're not really, um, equipping them with how to answer that question and how to become more attuned to their body. So I love the colors. I love the, um, the hand with the barking dog and the wise owl. So 
how do you have that conversation? And I can see how it would be with a younger child that would be different than with an older child. I could see if somebody's in yellow or red, asking them where they're at might be triggering in itself. Absolutely. Maybe we should assume there's some yellow or red going on and address that. So how do you see this like in, in action? So what this looks like in action Again, we have to consider the state the child's in because if we're asking them how they feel or what zone they're in, if they're in that elevated state, they can't access logic and reason. So they can't kind of filter through and think like, oh, I'm in this state or I feel this way because you have to tap into to memory, into the logic to, to access that information. So for me, when I see a child getting elevated or already in that red zone or that dog is wildly barking, I will state what I see because when I don't, like when I when I use the phrase, your body is telling me it's not saying you are so it's not shaming it's not blaming it's just it's saying i have evidence like your body is telling me you may need a break your body is telling me you know a drink of water might help so i kind of guide them to help them to see what's going on in their body by labeling what i see and then i'm i might give them a possible solution i think could work for them if that doesn't work or that doesn't feel right for this child then i would do something called co-regulation sometimes we're in a really elevated state what we really need someone to do is soak up our emotional energy so as the adult i will remain as neutral and as calm as i possibly can to soak up their strong emotions and energy and then i will model a way to calm down or to cope so i might model breathing i might model getting a drink and i would just talk out loud about feeling elevated and taking the step myself and because our brain has mirror neurons that often do what we see, if we see that as the elevated person, we'll naturally start to, to kind of mirror it. Emotions are contagious. So if we can stay stable and we can stay neutral, kids' energy will come back down. I love that. So um, it sounds to me like also what's really important is during your interactions with kids all the time, um, or with people all the time, like having these check-ins, not just when we're thinking that they might be yellow or red, or but having these check-ins so that we can constantly be saying, like, this is what blue looks like, this is what green looks like, this is what yellow looks like. Um, and what's interesting or what's cool with um, the equine portion of our program is we have an, a separate being that we can attach those feelings to. So we're always talking about body language and attunement to what do we think the horse is. So I would think that we could use that as like, do we think the horse is blue, green, yellow, or red, or whatever, um, whatever you're using, depending on the age of the child? Yeah, absolutely. And I, the, the one thing I try to be really careful of is, is we're always talking about like, bad behavior or inappropriate behavior or challenging behavior and we tend to focus on that because that's what we want to stop but it helps too to talk about when you're feeling like you're in the green zone and when you feel like your dog isn't barking so that there are times where i will i will make sure that i say and i usually have like visual reminders around me because i forget to focus on the positive so i will put the reminders of like the, the chart or the hand signal to, to tell myself, don't forget to catch kids being good. Don't forget to say yourself how you're, you know, you're in the green zone. Uh, and, and I will also relate it to 
multiple facets. Like if it's younger kids and we're reading books, the characters go through the zones. So like, it's not just them. It's not just me. It's the characters. It's movies, animals, characters, things in movies, in books, uh, other people. Like I might point out people in the community, like, oh, that person's in the yellow zone because of you know something they just said or something they just did, or that person's in the green zone or that child because they're running around the playground and they're happy. So making sure that we really teach and we really recognize that there's a whole spectrum of emotions and we're not just talking about the the big strong heavy challenging emotions but the the light fun and uh, feel good ones too so just because i can see the kids that we work with so say there was actually a visual of these colors and we were like hey we're doing connecting time whatever and we're like so where do we you know where do we fall what zone do you feel like you're in and it's like a kid is like green you know but <laughs> but you maybe know that it's not green so how walk me through um how that interaction might go to like oh okay cool tell yeah. me more about green then <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll get that or kid just like completely doesn't recognize or they do recognize and they, they want to be in green so they'll say they're in green when they're really not or they will respond very negatively like oh your body's telling me you're going into yellow no i'm not and get very mm -hmm. defensive um so what i try to do there is give evidence like what what about the body is telling me and i don't try and force it i'm like okay well here are some things you could do if you were in the yellow zone mm. uh, if your body were if your body was in the yellow zone um, I don't force it. I just try to help them to see. And I, I don't you know, maybe it's also to, to, to get a reaction out of me because I just are truly seeking attention. So by saying, you know, the opposite, maybe it's just an attention need. And I, I just need to guide them and then kind of let them on their own to, to let that sink in. But, um, I don't try and force it. I just try and enlighten and let go and, and, you know, see what they do with that information because trying to keep control over them, trying to force what I can obviously see isn't going to help either of us. Right. Yeah. This isn't, this is a tool for connection, not a tool and for regulation, not a tool for, you know, to, to trigger further. So would you ever um, say like, oh, well, I'm feeling yellow and a walk around outside would really help me like, could you help me do that? Like, would you ever put it on yourself? hundred percent. And usually when I'm initially teaching that categorization or that kind of emotional literacy in the beginning, that first step, what I will do is I will start with the child last. So I won't say like your body is telling me that's not the, f the first step is maybe starting to recognize it in more basic things like books, TV shows, whatever they're exposed to. That's like the first layer, the first level. And then I'll start to talk about it. Maybe other people, other peers, people in the community, myself, and then finally, the last part where I reference the, the, the zones of the bark dog is within the child. So they can see it's everyone else, everything around me experiences these zones and these, these colors and these, these feelings. Uh, and then finally, when they're comfortable seeing it in everyone else, then we can start to, to talk about it in them. And the biggest thing, too, is being in red is not bad. Being in red is not wrong. It's how you respond to being in red that may be wrong and I, I don't like think everything is anything is ever bad it's just you choices are made when we're not in our logic brain and we just need to know how to respond so you're not bad you're, it's not bad it's not wrong i go into the red zone that's okay that's normal we just need to know how to get back to the green zone 
Yeah, and a lot of times the way we react has worked for us. And so we've learned that that, that works, that you know, yelling, fighting, running, freezing, whatever is is gonna protect us. So yeah, it's so interesting because I'll get these like light bulbs like talking with you and or anyone, you know, and then I go, this is it. But then I'll notice that the approach, it's really the approach that matters, right? Because we could get this all wrong. We could have a kid, we could go, well, you're in the red, so you actually have to do breathing exercises. We're not going to be able to do anything today unless you do your breathing exercises and you're not breathing yet. You know, so, and so then you're going like, oh my God, that's not my approach, right? Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I shared earlier that, that coaching really helps because if I just go in and I teach this, like someone just listens to this and just implements it, it, it'll probably be effective to some extent, but what's helpful is like ha- me having a conversation with someone about the scenario, like about the implementation, or even, you know, I can even zoom in and do like virtual observations and I can see how it's being implemented. Uh, so being able to talk to someone or even see it in action really helped to guide someone to make sure that they're on track with, because the language is important because you know, the, the framework is great and the framework is helpful. But like you just gave in that example, if our body language or our actual language says something different, our tone, then the, the message is misconstrued. The message received is very different. And that's important, especially kids for high stress and trauma situations. So, okay. So in the, um, I'm guessing that there's some coping mechanisms that go kind of go with red and some coping mechanisms that can go with, um, yellow. So if a kid were to report what they were, or you were able to say your body's showing me this, um, and you guys got to a point where we're at yellow or we're at red, um, what are some things we can do? Is that the movement? And because some of those, some of the um, things that you were talking about seem like kind of things that can work on at home and things that we can work on daily and other things seem like kind of in the moment. Yeah. So great question. And what we do is kind of this top down and bottom up approach. So a top down approach would be back to that wise owl thinking brain and that barking dog, uh, emotional brain, the, the top down would be things that work on strengthening the thinking brain. So meditation, movement, um, breathing, yoga, stretching, kind of those slower moving things. They help to grow thinking brain so we can stay in that thinking brain, which is what we want. They're, they're harder things for kids to do. Those are the more preventative things. So we're going to kind of schedule those into our routine if we can, a minute here, a minute there, mindfulness, you know, there, there are unlimited things that fall into those categories. Even one of my, my favorite mindfulness activities is we'll do, like, this may not be possible in school, but it could be at home, savor the flavor. So, or even blindfold taste test. So you, you get a snack, maybe a familiar one, maybe a non-familiar one. It could be a fruit, whatever it may be. Savor the flavor. You just go through these, these micro steps to tasting the item. So you might feel it, then you might smell it and you might lick it. You might nibble it, might taste it. And talking about what are all the senses related to that. And, uh, the other one, blindfold taste test where we, 
blindfolded or a mask or something you can't see. And then you kind of go through those same sensory steps and try to figure out what the food is. And those things can take two, three, four, five minutes, but it's a mindful activity that actually works on strengthening the thinking brain. So we'll do a lot of stuff there preventatively. The more reactive stuff is the stuff for the barking dog. So would do um, like exercise movement. You could do um, some breathing. You could do some touch, you know, depending on the type of touch, where on the body it can be really de-escalating, some deep pressure, some sensory integration. Those things are those more reactive things that kind of help kids to get back to neutral faster. So we'll talk about both parts and then we'll introduce some coping calming skills from both ends. And talk about when to use them. So these are the ones we use in the moments. These are the ones that we use, you know, uh, preventatively ahead of time, and and kind of work through. Okay, that didn't work. So do we try it a different way, or do we try a different one? And we just get, you know, like I said, create a toolbox of trying trial and error. See what works. See how the kids respond. And then if it works, great. If it doesn't, we find a new one. Try a different one. And and, and giving them some choice. Even even a three year old. The, the, having some control over which strategies to use or, or having choices between one or two or even three can be really motivating for them. I love this. It, it's, it's great. So do you have that conversation after an activity again um, so that they can kind of recognize how their body has changed? Yeah. So the thing with teaching coping calming is if you want kids to remember them, you have to do that when they are calm. You have to do that when they are in their thinking brain, otherwise it won't sink into memory. So teaching them in the moment isn't, you, you can model them, you can co-regulate again, but, and, and that teaches them to some small extent, but we don't want to be going through a lesson of how to calm down and cope when a child is elevated. It's just, it's, it's too hard for them to access the things they need to access to store that. So if I get a child to get down to calm, uh, down to neutral, I might talk about it then, or I might talk about it the next day or later in the day. Uh, or, or what I'll try and do is I'll, I'll integrate the teaching of these things to, to maybe a small group of kids or a whole class even. And maybe it's a part of like our morning meeting. Maybe it's a part of our transition out the door. Maybe it's something we do before lunch. And I just kind of introduce maybe one a week or one every couple of days, talk about when to use them. I model using them myself. So they're learning by watching me use them. Uh, but they need to be taught them when they're calm and they need to practice them because if they don't practice them, when they create that neural connection in their brain of like, okay, this is what I use when I'm upset. If we don't practice it, that neural connection doesn't get strengthened. And if it doesn't get strengthened, it's going to be hard for them to pull it out of memory. The more they practice it, the more likely they are going to be able to use it when they are in that elevated state. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because I'm thinking of a kid in red. And um, in my experience, more often than not, a kid is not able to apply a suggested coping mechanism when they are in red, right? They're, yeah. they're past suggestion. In our program, we do a lot of um, disengaging and waiting and letting them mm -hmm. know that we'll be here for them when they're ready to engage and we under, you know, maybe labeling and stuff. Um, how do you feel and when is it appropriate to do repair? Uh, we call it like repair of the relationship, but if there's something that happens in red that, we feel like we need to go back and repair the relationship or we need to 
I don't know, maybe there was property damage during the time the kid was in red, or maybe there was calling somebody name or something that we mm -hmm. feel like it's something that we want to address, but we're going to do it when they're in their thinking brain. How does that work in with, with your framework? That is a part of that last step, that problem solving. Okay. So that's where, I, that's where I think it's so important to not skip this step because not only do they need to know what they need to do next time, but sometimes solving the problem is, is just repairing. And I, I, I think that's so crucial. So the, the biggest part about this, because it's repairing not only maybe the, the issue or the, you know, if, if furniture was damaged, we're, we're repairing that problem, but we're also building and connecting the relationship because in this problem solving conversation, when they are back to neutral, when they're in their thinking brain, what we do is we walk through these four steps, really short, because if you talk too much, you'll lose them. You felt, I felt, problem, solution. So it's a collaborative conversation where I include them, how they're feeling, I validate them, and then I state the problem. And we collectively come up with solutions. And I write those things down and we choose a solution that we both mutually agree upon. Do you revisit that solution? Um, like if the same thing comes up, you know, next session or the next day or? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it's very closely related to when we are teaching those coping calming skills, we have to practice them. It's the same thing with the solutions. Like if we're talking about, we came up with a alternative behavior choice, just coming up with it and just kind of talking through it briefly, isn't going to probably solicit that response next time. Cause it's not in their brain. It's not practice. It's not locked in. So I will take that solutions list whichever one we circle and I'll put it somewhere where we can see it. And maybe like later in the day or the next morning or before I know when that, happening might come again i remind them that when they feel this way here's the thing that we're going to try to do and periodically reminding them and and maybe even role playing through let's pretend this is happening let's let's you know i'll do it first and you can do it or you know if that they're not comfortable with that maybe kids younger kids or stuffed animals whatever but role playing through that same exact scenario using the new chosen solution because the more they're exposed to it the more they see it the more they practice it more likely they are to use it. And, and know that we're talking about kids with stressed out brains, exposed to trauma, their memory systems are not as strong. Absolutely. This is so, it's just so relatable. And I love that it, it's, it's easy enough. Um, you know, it's I, like, I love that it's, it's attainable and it's attainable for everyone. There's a lot of the reason I developed stable moments was because I felt like there was a gap that it wasn't educators or mentors or parents that could come together and do this work, but it really had to be a clinician and kind of the simplicity of this work and this approach that you're talking about just makes it much more attainable, which we know we can reach a lot more, a lot more kids and really just change how people are showing up yep. for kids um, by having them understand. Yeah, I think. Bruce Perry, I believe, said it's people, not programs that change people. And I think that's what I tell educators, like, this isn't my field. This, I don't have training in this. This is my background. I'm like, the, the greatest reward is relationship. So all you need to do to start the healing process is just show up. Well, I feel like you've given us so much practical 
you know, application and knowledge and, and I love the work you're doing. So let us know um, how can people access you or what do you have out there for resources for, for parents or anybody else that is more interested in your framework? The first bit of advice I would give is go to the website and the website is just thebehaviorhub.com. And on there you'll have many podcasts, blogs. And then if you want to learn more about the work that I do or, or how to work with me, a discovery call is the first step because we can talk about what, which pathway is the best for you. Because I do coaching, but it's quite intensive because uh, it gets results a lot faster. So that's one option, uh, but less time consumption could be, you know, I've created courses around all of these things. And that could be, again, a less live uh, component. So always talk first, what's the need? What do I do? And, and how can what I do best for your life, your time, and all of those things. So lots of free information and uh, always willing to chat with anyone about how I can support. Yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, if, if anybody that's listening is part of an education system or part of a program or a, a church or anything that has programming where a framework like this could be helpful, I know that so, you know, there's a lot more trauma-informed buzz language coming around and mm -hmm. a lot of people want to do those trainings, um, mm -hmm. but it can feel a lot like checking off a box and it really sounds like you have made it a point to not have it just check out a box and really help the kids. Um, but it's fine that, you know, we all need someone to come in and handhold us through, through some of this stuff. And it just seems like this is a really attainable uh, framework uh, that doesn't require you know, you hiring a bunch of clinicians and offering therapy and all of that. Yeah, it's a great point. And I would encourage anyone to really dig into the programs that they are considering adopting or bringing into their programs uh, because trauma informed, trauma invested is such a buzzword right now. And it's so important that we understand like the neurodevelopmental process around stress and trauma so that what we are implementing isn't doing more damage. Uh, and I, I've seen programs that I, I would hope that someone informed them that, that there are better ways based on what we know about the brain to, to solve these problems and just being really mindful of, of what type of programming we're using and where it's coming from. Yeah, and you've talked so much about the brain and regulation and the thinking brain versus the survival brain. And I think that that's all so relevant to children with complex trauma. But really, all children need to be regulated to be able to learn and think. So this isn't just a framework for children with complex trauma or for children in foster care. This is really a framework for, for all kids, really going back to, and people, really going back to, um, Melissa Satan's answer was that whole like, no, you do it for the whole school, you do it for the whole classroom, and you're going to reach everybody. You don't just pick out, you know, the kids that you think need this. Yep, I agree. Everyone needs it. I love it. So, okay, so where can can we find you? I know the behaviorhub.com. Is there any socials? Yeah, we can be found on any social platform at the Behavior Hub. Uh, probably the most active is our Facebook group, open public group. It's called Raising and Teaching Respectful Children. That's probably where I show up the most. Oh, I love it. 
Okay, well, I will link to all of that in the show notes. This was such a good, good conversation. I feel like really gate will give a lot of, um, I keep, I keep saying practical, but I just, I can see this really working in our sessions that people are in and I can see it working, you know, with parents taking this framework at home. And, um, I'm definitely going to look into your work more, um, and seeing which pieces, um, can really intertwine well into the stable moments model because um, the more tools we can give people, the better. Agreed. No, I appreciate that. It's very kind of you. And I appreciate your time and the invitation to share the, the message. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. All right, bye-bye. See ya. Thank you.